Hello and welcome to another episode of Stratcom Talks. I'm your host, Jafar Haslan. Today we are going to be talking about some of the biggest human rights challenges on a global scale. We will also be looking at how we can ensure effective communication of human rights among the masses. To discuss all this and more today, I'm joined by Muneeb Kader. He is a human rights lawyer based out of uh, Pakistan. Muneeb, thank you very much for joining us today on this podcast. Thank you for having me, Jafar. All right, so let's uh, start the discussion. Uh, my first question to you, Mani, which also happens to be the main theme of today's discussion, what are some of uh, the biggest challenges to, to human rights in today's world? Given the complexities of the modern world, and we are in the middle of a pandemic, what I'm seeing, and it's not just me, but this is a concern, there is a rise in you know, right-wing populism in politics. And this is a phenomenon which is uh, being witnessed all across the globe. So it's even Western democracies, you know, and that is uh, what is a bit frightening. Turning towards or tilting towards uh, right-wing rhetoric, for instance, if you look at what's going on in France, in French politics, you know, the presidential election just around the corner. Somehow it's the right-wing parties, people like Marine Lapin or Eric Zemmour who are gaining traction. Now, Eric Zemmour, people like those, they have openly, you know, spoken out against immigration. They have made very problematic Islamophobic or anti-Semitic statements. I know about Eric Zemmer, his Holocaust denial tendencies, and they are, this is all in public. Right. Secondly, you know, we are also seeing, as part of this right-wing populism, a very hostile attitude towards refugees and asylum seekers. Just a few weeks ago, and I, I hope that a lot of our listeners would know that. Around 27 individuals lost their lives. They got drowned while, you know, undertaking a channel crossing from France to the UK. And it's the response of, you know, the states, whether it's France or whether it's the UK, it's very defensive and it's not in accordance with the protections which are guaranteed to refugees which are guaranteed to individuals. Somehow states are trying to pin it down on non-state actors. So for instance, Preeti Patel, who is the Home Secretary of the UK, she has said that all of that happened not because the UK failed to provide safe and legal routes to immigrants, but it happened because of human traffickers. And so, you know, the states and those who are running the state apparatus, all of right. them are trying to find, all of them are trying to point fingers at someone. They're trying to find scapegoat on whom they could pin it all up. I mean, fine, I understand that, you know, human traffickers and human smugglers, they are a problem. But who provides them with the opportunities to be able to put people's lives in, in peril? Similarly, I'm seeing a politicization of human rights. For instance, I come from Pakistan, and then there's a lot of whataboutry which happens, emanating both from my own country as well as from the other countries to whom Pakistan keep on, uh, keeps on addressing its grievances. So, for instance, you know, Pakistan just recently, yesterday, they hosted an OIC summit and they made a case for the plight of Afghan, the lack of food, the humanitarian crisis, you know, or the famine which has taken over after the Taliban regime installed itself. And on the other hand, the international community is talking about Pakistan's human rights. We've seen something happen in Sialkot, for instance, and the rise in mob culture. So they asked the Pakistani government, what are you doing about it? And then the Pakistani government turns back and says, but what are you doing about the Kashmir situation? 
which is huge humanitarian crisis spanning seven decades. Or what are you doing about Palestine? And then I see the international community turning back and saying, when will you condemn what is going on with the Uyghur Muslims in China? And so, you know, there is this back and forth between states. They're all using human rights as political point scoring tools. And that is a huge problem. Indeed, it is a huge problem, Sumini. But as I understand what you are saying is uh, the states are talking about human rights, but no one is really uh, implementing what they're talking about in their own countries, right? Unfortunately, that's the case. Yeah. Okay, now, Mani, moving forward, you spoke about uh, some leaders who have uh, engaged in populism, who have engaged in what uh, many would say is a far-right rhetoric. What do you think has emboldened those uh, leaders in doing so? Do you think it has to do something with the fact that uh, we, uh, as uh, the international community, have largely failed in effectively communicating uh, human rights uh, to the masses? Uh, I First of all, communicating human rights to the masses. I think people don't have any concept of human rights. They don't know what their rights are. I keep on asking my fellow Pakistanis that you only need to go onto the OHCHR's website and you need to read those reports known as concluding observations, which are issued by various UN treaty bodies, or, you know, the concluding observations which are issued by the Human Rights Council after the Universal Periodic Review, and you need to identify what your rights are and why does your state need to defend itself every now and then in front of these bodies. It's because these are your rights, and somehow you are not being educated upon these. And you need to learn what your rights are. Because ultimately, human rights can be a very powerful tool. They have only fallen into the wrong hands. Right now, what is happening? If I may interject, I think you have made a very, very good point here. We need to know what our rights are. What is the best way for us uh, uh, to learn what our rights are? Are there any good websites out there? Perhaps you could uh, recommend some? So I think their go-to website, the first place that you need to go is to the OHCHR website. Now, OHCHR website, that is the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. You will find um, you know, all the treaties that I have named during our conversation, the individual treaties. You will find the treaty bodies and what they have said about your state. You will find those in PDF versions and in various languages, in your own local language as well. You will also find, uh, you know, the conclusions or the reports given by the UN special procedures, by UN special reporters. And, I mean, the amount of learning that there is, I can't even begin to explain. And I also feel that somehow, whenever I look at, you know, the curriculum in schools or universities, there's very less emphasis on human rights studies. There's very less emphasis on human rights education. I mean, in, in my own country, there was a golden opportunity for inculcating human rights values into the syllabus, but I don't see any. There has been a new single national curriculum, and the stress is a lot on what the local audience would like. For local consumption, it's good. And it is a good PR exercise for the current government, for the ruling party. And this is again a global phenomenon in our neighboring India. I've seen the same things, that they have come up with a single curriculum, but um, hardly any emphasis on human rights or the law. And, you know, it's at a very young age. We need to teach our children what their rights are. So that when they grow up, they do have degrees and qualifications in their hands, but they also learn how to respect others' rights as well as to stand up for their own rights. And like I said, it's just that these rights have fallen into the wrong hands. States are using these as propaganda tools. And again, you know, in this day and age, you're talking about what, what sort of human rights crisis are we experiencing? 
there's also the menace of non-state actors. How does one distinguish between, you know, state actors and non-state actors? Now, we've seen what's happened in Afghanistan after the 15th August takeover by the Taliban. Uh, majority of the international community has not accorded them any recognition. So are they under, if, the, if, if it's not a government in the eyes of the international community, are the Taliban under any human rights obligations? Because it's the state, it's the government which owes these rights. If Taliban is not a government, what is it? Is it a non-state actor? If it's a non-state actor, then human rights law is not binding on them. Perhaps international humanitarian law might be, not human rights law. So this blurring also, are states committing human rights abuses by omission? For instance, I've just read what's happened in India, you know, just this week. In Amritsar, there has been a lynching uh, by some states in uh, the Golden Temple. And politicians, they haven't condemned it. Now, are they creating an enabling environment for right-wing mobs to, you know, start using street power? Because there is a very interesting concept in international law, and I don't want to take up too much time, but it's called due diligence. And the due diligence principle says that states are not only under negative duties, not to interfere with people's individual human rights, but they are also under positive duty to ensure that private entities or individuals do not commit human rights abuses. And if they do, they are brought to justice. Those human rights abuses ought to be investigated and redress needs to be provided to individuals. So my problem is, and you know, we've also seen this in the United States with the Trump era, how politicians for their own political gains are empowering these right-wing mobs. We saw Donald Trump, you know, equating right-wing mob groups like the QAnon with the Black Lives Matter movement when the Charlottesville incident happened in 2017, whereby, you know, right-wing white supremacists, they attacked and they drove over pro-democracy protesters. Donald Trump equated them. He said that, you know, the behavior of both was uncivil. And that creates an enabling environment. We saw that culminate right. in the in um, what happened in Washington on 6th January with the U.S. capital right. attacks. So the problem is that be it India, be it my own country, so the problem to the politicians. Right. It is so the problem is universal. The problem is universal. The yeah. issue of human rights violation is not limited to one particular region. It's happening all over the but world. It's becoming this- a trend. Exactly, exactly. And this brings me to my next question. When it comes to uh, uh, a universal problem, uh, I think a universal problem needs a universal solution, collective uh, global response. Uh, So, and one body which could perhaps uh, help countries in uh, coming up with a collective global response is the United Nations. Do you think the United Nations has played an effective role in ensuring that uh, human rights are upheld? You know, with a lot of disappointment, I have to say, no, it hasn't. And the reason being that very much like the international community, it is, you know, the the direction in which the United Nations moves is very much in accordance with political alliances and political interests. And the veto power in the Security Council, for example, is a major stumbling block. And I have something very interesting to tell you that, uh, you know, David Miliband, who was the former foreign secretary of the UK, he's just said this week that the Security Council will have to give up their veto power on at least cases of alleged mass atrocities. Now, if that happens, I think that could be the turning of the tide. What is meant by that is that the P5, the permanent, uh, the five permanent members of the Security Council, any one of them, depending on their political agenda, could veto any matter pertaining to a humanitarian crisis in the Security Council, and everything hits a roadblock. And there's no way forward. So, for example, 
the israel palestine issue which again you know reached its peak this summer hasn't come to any conclusion so many efforts have been put in uh, you know uh, bringing this onto the international agenda but it hasn't come to fruition why because for example the usa is going to veto because they are allies with israel just recently you know russia used its veto power against a un security council resolution casting the climate crisis as a threat to international peace and security so when that happens we've also been seeing how you know china prevented any un action against the rohingya genocide in myanmar they used their veto and this is what has been going on and that is why there are so many human stories of suffering from kashmir to pakistan to myanmar to the minorities in india or for that matter in my own country and so that limits the effectiveness of international human rights law it really makes one feel as if you know these rights or these so called universal rights exist only on paper and then there are also you know other organs of the united nations like the international court of justice and it's very disappointing that in 2007 when the international court of justice had itself admitted that uh, you know during the yugoslavian war what had been done to bosnian muslims by the serbs the acts amounted to genocide but the intention for committing acts of genocide was not proven i think that was a huge blow how does one determine then it becomes impossible to say that you know there was an intent to commit genocide going by the standards set by the icj and that is why those international criminal tribunals had to step in so the icj could also have done a lot i hope that they do something about the campaign brought forward by gambia in relation to genocide allegations against myanmar what they are doing to rohingya community perhaps that could you know act as some sort of damage control for the icj's reputation but again the icj hasn't done enough then there is the international criminal court and the problem with that is that its remit is very limited it's limited to only okay. those uh, individuals or officials involved in war crimes or crimes against humanity who belong to countries which are state parties the rome statute on the icc and if their acts were committed on the territory of those state parties or if the security right. council refers the matter to the icc but like i've said almost everything is vetoed in the security council at least everything that matters exactly exactly and many uh, but this is something we have been talking about for years that uh, the united nations security council does not uh, uh, provide uh, uh, enough uh, representation it does not uh, uh, it does not equally uh cover different regions for example it has only five uh, members who who have the power to veto anything the united nations general assembly discusses so there is certainly there is certainly inequality injustice taking place within uh the united nations but so of course that is a different topic uh, for another day now the issue of human rights is one of the, the the issue of human rights violations is perhaps one of the most pressing issues of our times yeah. certainly uh, these institutions such as uh, the international court of justice the united nations and uh, many others have largely failed in addressing this issue so let me ask you what can we do on an individual level as human beings uh, to protect uh, the human rights of uh, uh, one another i think what needs to be done is that we need to educate ourselves if our states are failing us we need to look up this is the digital age and i think one of the greatest blessings is that of uh, fine you know there are cyber attacks and there is a lot of trolling as well and there are negative uh, effects of social media and too much reliance on the internet but at the same time you know there is a plethora of information available which is just a single click away so awareness is the first step also you know with awareness what what happens is that somehow citizens start 
standing up for their rights. You know, what, what is meant by rule of law is that there is no one set group of individuals which are above the law. All are subject to law. And what that means is that whatever your state is telling you, you don't just blindly believe it. You question back because that is the social contract theory. And, uh, you know, it's uh, very alarming how we keep on reading about powerful Israeli companies like NSO using the Pegasus spyware, how states are, you know, clients for these spywares. Just today I was reading that a UN expert who was looking into possible war crimes in Yemen committed by Saudi Arabia, his phone was hacked by the Saudi officials using the Pegasus spyware. And that also brings me to, you know, we should be pressing for, corp- uh, for corporate responsibility. Why is it that only states are subject to international rights regimes? These corporates, which make huge profits, they are destroying our, our environment. We need to stand up for environmental justice. Environmental rights are also human rights. You know, we need to identify what should count as crimes against humanity. Is it only limited to, for example, torture, extrajudicial killings, which, by the way, are rampant? Uh, or should it also include things like vaccine inequity, uh, environmental degradation, the use of corporate profit-making businesses by state clients to spy on journalists? Because again, you know, there's a shrinking space right. for journalists. There's a shrinking space for freedom of expression. In a country which has fared relatively better, like the United Kingdom, they are talking about scrapping the Human Rights Act. Why? Because they're saying that, you know, private interests do not prevail over public interests. They do not prevail over national security. And now national security is a tag that we need to be very wary of because, yes, national Correct. security is important. But Correct. how exactly do we define it? In India, for example, everyone who descends is slapped with a UAPA notice and is labeled a terrorist. And, you know, who gets to defend that? The potential violators, i.e. the states themselves, they are going to come up with the self-suiting narrative. And so, you know, once we educate ourselves, once we start standing up for ourselves, and at least if someone has a voice, if someone is learned enough, you know, they need to be conducting more and more seminars, awareness programs. And because, you know, when I look at, uh, again, I'm going to give the example of my own country. There's also Mm -hmm. shrinking space for NGOs. The word NGO is used as if it's a very bad, as if it's a very dirty word. And there have been laws which have been introduced which make it almost impossible for an NGO to to, to register or to raise finances. And if the civil society is going to shrink into nothingness, who will keep a check and balance? So I think awareness, I believe inculcating and instilling human rights values into education. I believe that those who are privileged enough, who have had an education in human rights, they should come forward and they should highlight, and not just highlight, they need to take up pro bono cases. For example, if I'm a lawyer, you know, this is what I can do. I I can take up pro bono cases. And and the sad story is that for a lot of lawyers and even journalists, it does become very dangerous to take up controversial cases. There are some unspoken red lines which you're not supposed to cross. Okay, but how about we start questioning those red lines, you know, for a start. We have to start from somewhere because right now what is happening is individuals are being used as bargaining chips. Uh, For example, Nazneen Zaghari Ratcliffe, she has been in prison in Iran for years. Why? Because they have some unsettled claims in the UK, or so I'm told. You know, Belarus is pushing migrants into EU border through the Polish border and uh, throwing dogs at them. They are being drowned in rivers. And then, you know, the Polish forces are also committing acts of torture using gas, tear gas against children. And I'm not saying that. You only need to read The Guardian. You only need need to read... I was reading Human Rights Watch. 
and they literally talked about you know weapons being used against children child immigrants when under the refugee convention of 1951 there is a principle of non refoulement you cannot send people away when they are on your soil you have to consider their asylum applications being human is not illegal what is illegal is what these states are doing and that is what we need to be aware of exactly and i think you have made a great point uh, there are some red lines uh, and we should uh, start questioning uh, those red lines because uh, the priority at uh, this point is to ensure that human rights not just uh, in a particular region but across the world are upheld many qadir uh, unfortunately we're we're out of time uh, certainly we need a much longer discussion uh, for this topic this uh, could so, go on and on exactly it's exactly we need perhaps uh, more than 6 7 hours to discuss the issue of human rights violations that are taking place uh, in different parts of the world uh, but unfortunately we're out of time munib qadir thank you very much for uh joining us today on this uh, podcast and thanks Thank for uh, having to me. our thanks to our audience for tuning in